Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm Maureen Metcalf. I'm your host and the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate the quality of leadership globally and work with those leaders to create a thriving future. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. Today, I am delighted that we are joined by Eric Redmond, and we're going to be talking about deep tech, demystifying the breakthrough technologies. Eric is a Forrest Gump of technology, a 20-year veteran technologist who always happens to show up where deep tech history is being made, from first iPhone apps to big data to Bitcoin. Eric will tell you a little bit about himself in just a minute. So deep tech is described as capabilities that were impossible yesterday, barely feasible today, but tomorrow will be so pervasive that it's hard to imagine life without them. We're in the early stages of the digital age and understanding how deep tech is disrupting the world is no longer a competitive advantage. It's a matter of survival. Eric joins me today to discuss his new book, Deep Tech, Demystifying the Breakthrough Technologies that Will Revolutionize Everything. Eric, thank you for joining us. Please tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. I've been a technologist for well over three decades. Don't count backwards from that, please. And (laughs) my current role is really educating and elevating the importance of understanding and leveraging technology for business leaders. The book is what brought us together, but happy to talk about any kind of topics around that. Eric, your book is called Deep Tech, really intriguing to me. Can you give our listeners a high-level explanation beyond what I just described of what deep tech is and why it's so important today? Yeah, absolutely. It is because on balance, deep tech, despite the title having the word tech in it, deep tech isn't really about the tech per se. Tech are just the tools. What it's really about is that unlocking that combinatorial creativity that allows individuals, organizations, governments, and and everyone to fundamentally reimagine the world and how we interact with it. And so can you give some examples, please? Yeah, for sure. So I think the easiest examples are, look at the, the sort of top market cap companies. You can point at them and say, hey, they're tech companies. You've got you know Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft. And I don't run a tech company, so why do I need to know this? Well, the reality is, many of them aren't necessarily tech companies either. They just leverage tech really, really well. So you look at Amazon, for example, they're a marketplace, they're a logistics company. They just leverage technology really well. Yeah, they have a website, but your company probably also has a website. You can look at Google. Google is the world's number one advertiser. You can look at Facebook and Facebook is the world's largest media streaming company, if you come right down to it, despite their apparent protests. Even even Apple runs a TV station and Microsoft runs a video game company. So what's interesting is those organizations have embraced 
sort of emerging technology and deep technology down to their DNA. And that allows them to unlock any market that they decide to get into. So there's plenty of examples of deep tech. I mean, I'd say the easiest are think back 10 years ago or 15 years ago, uh, smartphones. Again, it was impossible previously. It was barely feasible around 2007. But today, imagine smartphones not existing. It's really hard to imagine life without it. So a lot of these emerging technologies, deep technologies, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality, blockchain, 3D printing, you go right down the list, it's going to be very hard in a decade to imagine a world without it. So pick one that you can walk us through the implications. And the one that comes to mind you just said is 3D printing, but pick one that you'd prefer to talk about. Where we are as we're as we're speaking now, just coming out of the pandemic, there is a shortage of lumber. The futures on, on wood right now is through the roof. I believe it's like over a 300% markup than where it was at this time last year. Well, there are companies now that are starting to 3D print houses and they're 3D printing houses using this interesting like concrete plastic composite that's very strong. It's very sturdy. You can print it in any shapes you want and they're doing it for a few thousand dollars and it can, you can print an entire house in, in 48 hours with only two or three people. They just printed a house in Florida. A company just printed a house to code. And Florida has apparently very stringent building codes. There are now people living in 3D houses. And it's just one of those technologies, I think, if you fast forward this to a few years, because it's so fast, because it's so cheap, because it's so versatile, because the quality is so high, what are the arguments for building houses the old way? So that ripples through everything related to transportation right? Because now I don't need to necessarily go to a store or I'll go to my local Lowe's. I'll place an order online. They'll 3D print stuff. Producers won't need to manufacture them. So it'll change manufacturing. It'll change transportation. It'll change shortage of raw materials. Some of the things, like you mentioned, lumber, we won't have shortages of other things, rare earths, and we still need them. Yeah, and now, now you're getting, I think, into the, to the most interesting aspect of this. Again, I, I always have to reiterate, the book is not about the technologies themselves. It's about opening you up to where the tech is today. It's not even about the future. It's about what exists now, what is most likely to be a major force, uh, these so-called GPTs or general purpose technologies, um, as economists call them, that are going to fundamentally disrupt entire industries. And how do they work together? And you called out, for example, supply chain and logistics. Absolutely. I mean, it's not about manufacturing maybe in Southeast Asia, putting that completed product on, on a boat and shipping it across uh, the oceans to the world, mm -hmm. uh, which obviously has it's slower, has a car carbon footprint, but instead shipping raw materials somewhere and on site or onshore manufacturing. Now you add in let's say, self-driving cars to that. And now I don't even have to go to the facility to pick it up. I just send my car to go pick it up for me. I don't even own a car. I just The car is just maybe owned by a fleet that will just go and pick it up and drop it off at my house at, at midnight for pennies on the dollar. I mean, you can just keep stacking and then and then and then. And then you'll pay for it with blockchain transactions or Bitcoin. Yeah, for sure. Or, you can track it in real time using Internet of Things. Yeah, absolutely. 
So how likely is this? And I, I realize it's not about the tech specifically, but as I think about what we talk to leaders about following the trends that are likely to upend their business, something like 3D printing, assuming it plays out like you just described, and it's already in play. So this isn't some Jetson someday we're going to have hovercrafts. Mm-hmm. It's happening now to code in a place that's highly susceptible to hurricanes. So what should leaders who are listening to this show be thinking about? Is this in their current time horizon? Yeah, it is happening right now. The thing that I think a lot of people are pointing at is, look, the the pandemic has definitely impacted the direction and focus of deep tech. Digital transformation has been happening slowly for the past decade with major corporations, of course, startups, but also society itself. This was always going to happen. But the timeline's accelerated now by five to 10 years. I do know some folks are sort of holding out for the pandemic to end, hoping we'll go back to the way things were, going to the office, taking phone calls, manual processes. But that's not very likely. Consumers are driving a lot of this. The the expectation of a digital experience is now. High-achieving employees expect the flexibility of remote work. So how do you create that sense of presence? You know, Zoom is fine. It was a stopgap solution, but there are sort of downsides to this where you don't necessarily feel that sense of presence with a highly distributed workforce. So can you use something like virtual reality to provide that? I'll give an example of this sort of acceleration is Nike, for example, is five years ahead on their direct-to-consumer sales. A significant percentage of products are now bought online rather than in a store. There's no reason to believe that that's going to backslide. More people are banking online, buying food online, buying sundries from Target online. And board of directors have noticed 60% of boards now say that COVID has accelerated their digital transformation strategy. So deep tech is not really, it's not the what, but it's the so what. The, The tech that's covered in the book is intended to give leaders sort of a minimal literacy of these technologies. What you do with that knowledge, that creativity is entirely up to you. So does that mean that next time I teach a class, I can send my holograph and I don't have to get on an airplane? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways that's happening already. There was a very big concert going on in the game Fortnite. Uh, Travis Scott, the artist, did a concert there. 20 million people showed up to watch a virtual concert. Nobody drove anywhere. Nobody showed up anywhere. But he was still able to reach that audience. For comparison, I think only 100,000 showed up to the original Woodstock, the order, the magnitude, I think kids are going to be talking about that Travis Scott concert, just in the same way that older generations talked about their concerts that were transformative of their lives. But more people were able to attend, and it was just as meaningful to them. So then let's talk about what this means for leaders. Because again, I think this, and you hit this, I believe, in your book, that modern leaders need to understand at some level the landscape of deep tech. Why is it, and you just answered this on the surface, but I'd like to go deeper, that post-pandemic for some organizations, if you're a manufacturing organization, chances are your people showed up on site during the pandemic, that piece of your business didn't change. Yet you're probably having trouble transporting your products because everyone's having supply chain challenges largely driven by human labor. 
where you did your back office operations, location may have changed, and you may be looking at robotic process automation. Talk a little bit more about why, as a leader, do I need to stay on top of this? As you said, things have changed. I mean, in short, we don't live in that world anymore where you can just offshore this knowledge, right? You can't offshore your strategy. You can't outsource your brain. You can't pay someone else to be creative on your behalf in the way that you need. I mean, you know what you're doing. You know your business. You know your consumer. But to have creative ideas grounded in reality, you have to have a sense of what's even possible. And it turns out that deep tech is both weirder and more capable than many leaders believe. And the only missing ingredient here is your own creativity and willingness to experiment. So again, deep tech isn't about the tech. It's about the combinatorial creativity that's unlocked by it. And so if I understand it, just like Uber and Airbnb and other creative folks, I'm able to take advantage of the opportunities, in some cases, change entire industries, but at a minimum, not get out of business because I wasn't paying attention. Yes, exactly. And and the short version I always say is disruption is going to happen. Either you can disrupt or you can be disrupted. Those are your only choices. And as the pace of change accelerates, that disruption is happening more frequently. It's more complete than it had been. And it's coming from from more directions. I mean, I can't imagine that 10 years ago, for example, the executives at Viacom were sitting around worried about Apple competing with them in the television space. Like, why would they even think of that? But now that's exactly what's happening. Your competitors can come from anywhere. And there's this whole concept of what they call digital natives. The digital natives are going to have an easier time adapting to emerging technologies. Consumers will adopt a technology way more readily than an organization will, for the most part. And so they're always the one to drive it. A decade ago, I was in the um, telecom expense management industry. And the thing we kept running into is these large corporations were buying all of their employees' Blackberries, but all of the employees owned iPhones personally. And so they kept going back to their tech department saying, look, I don't want a BlackBerry. I want an iPhone just like I've had all along. And the companies kept pushing back me like, well, yeah, but we don't support that. All they want is the same level of consumer experience in their workplace operationally. And so I think that's that's really driving a lot of this need and behavior within organizations. Consumers are obviously driving it external. And then entrepreneurs are also driving it external. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's they're always, I would say, entrepreneurs are always a risk. You know, it's always the the thing about a kid in a garage can always put a large corporation out of business. And I think that's been known for a long time. I think what's different now is that we are now in an age where you can go from an idea to reality to scale in a manner of a few months. For example, after this, I have a conversation going on at Clubhouse. Here's an app that didn't even exist a year ago. And now they've got millions and millions and millions of people that they're they're driving into this, this platform because it's possible. And if it's possible, someone's going to do it. 
So for our listeners, share what is Clubhouse even? And why is it that folks who have been wanting visual contact are now doing something on an app that doesn't give you that? I think it comes back to, we'll see where this goes. I mean, right now mm-hmm. folks are using it. But yeah, there's there's just, again, this this desire. I think, I think the pandemic actually helped them quite a lot. People felt very isolated and they just wanted to be parts of live conversations. It was just a niche that, that they uncovered. And, but that's, I think, exactly the point is you had Twitter that's like, oh, well, you know, we're going to have short text conversations. You have Instagram. It's like, we're going to have short visual conversations. You've got podcasts that are going to have this audio <laughs> experience. But having sort of this in-between that they've just uncovered, there's a niche there. And what's interesting is that they experimented with it, and it seems to be a thing that people are interested in. Again, getting into deep tech, they didn't invent any new technology here. They just uncovered a need in a white space and were able to immediately scale. And I think that's really the salient point, especially for leaders of large organizations and industries, that it's really all about speed. You have to be able to match the innovative thinking, the creativity, as well as the speed of all of these bit players. Because your size isn't necessarily going to inoculate you or protect you in the future. You know, one of the things I've seen that's interesting is large companies that aren't able to match the speed, but they are paying attention to what's happening on the ecosystem. And when they see someone who's offering something they want, they acquire it. And I think it's actually IBM who's helping some of the large companies integrate some of these upon acquisition disparate players that then get woven into the fabric. The speed comes in the weaving in some cases. That is always a trick. There are a million examples of M&As gone wrong because the acquired organization had a completely different culture, the company that is acquiring them. And so it had nothing to do with a failure of technology or a failure of desire on everyone's part. But there is sometimes this organ rejection of acquisition. I would say that the M&A isn't necessarily the silver bullet. It's not a replacement for comprehending and understanding where technology is going for and being innovative in your own right. The smaller players can do it really efficiently because they don't have the overhead and and some mm-hmm. of the reporting requirements. Yeah, and this is this is sort of the classic innovator's dilemma, right? It's it's so much easier for a small player to go up market than it is for a large player to go down market. Absolutely. And I don't think that anything has changed about that. You talk about seven different types of deep tech. Describe the different areas and what do you think will have the most impact on the average person? The technologies are artificial intelligence, which is like machine learning and deep neural nets and all of that. Really artificial brains, artificial thinking, artificial judgments. The next is extended reality, which is sort of a catch-all term for virtual reality, augmented reality, really blurring the lines between what's physical and what's digital. IoT, the Internet of Things, smart devices, wearables, all of that, autonomous vehicles and autonomous robotics. So not just self-driving cars, but also even automated warehousing. Then we've got uh, 3D, or then we've got blockchain, cryptocurrencies, smart contracts, non-fungible tokens, NFTs are a big thing right now. All of that sort of rests on this blockchain technology. 3D printing 
additive manufacturing, a new type of manufacturing paradigm. Up until now, everything has largely been sort of assembly or molding or subtractive manufacturing, which is sort of cutting things down. Uh, So additive manufacturing, the ability to sort of build up complex shapes in an automated way. And what's sort of fascinating about that is that there's lower waste and it can be highly specialized. It can be unique even at scale. And then finally, quantum computers, quantum computing being sort of this new computational paradigm. It's going to have huge ramifications for everything from drug research to material investigation to optimizing logistics, supply chains, and security and all of this. I read through it, that list, it's largely in the order of near to furthest term impact. So AI right now is already changing the world. The reason it's even included in this book as a sort of still emerging technology is is because there's still a lot of work to go. I don't think, I think this whole decade is is if we look back, going to be the decade of AI, just because the economic value of artificial minds is so powerful, artificial thinking, artificial judgments, which I don't think is really going to be a major player until really the end of the decade, but it is coming much faster than I think folks are even aware. Let's go into a little bit more on an example of AI and maybe machine learning. AI is all around us already. I mean, if you book a ticket on an airline, that suggestion, that price was probably managed entirely by AI. There used to be all of these rules where they'd say, oh, buy buy an airline ticket on a Wednesday because it's going to be the lowest. And none of that even operates that way anymore. It's all automated. Beautiful example. So we are going to go on break now. This is Maureen Metcalf and Eric Redman, and we are talking about deep tech demystifying breakthrough technologies. And as we come back, we're going to talk about the next six areas and how they will apply to your lives in the next five to 10 years. And really closing with, again, an invitation for you as leaders to think about more extensively how these are going to ripple through your business and how you think about being a leader. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. 
From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one. Hosted by Frank Hellring, we'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Hi, welcome back to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. You are with Maureen Metcalf and Eric Redmond, and we're talking about deep tech demystifying the breakthrough technologies. So Eric suggested that there are seven different deep tech groupings. Before break, he talked about artificial intelligence being already in play and will continue to be in play. So Eric, do you want to talk any more about AI or do you want to jump to extended reality? Yeah, we can do a little more about AI. One of the interesting things about AI is it's simultaneously fascinating and also highly mundane. And so I talked about the sort of day job of most AIs is you go to Google, optimizing your search results just for you. You go on Facebook, optimizing your feed just for you. You got to buy a ticket a ticket just for you. That personalization is largely driven by AI. You go to Netflix, it is AI behind the covers that is recommending what movies you want to watch based off of your reaction. The ability to create this sort of personalized one-on-one experience at scale was unthinkable a decade ago. And now it's so increasingly commonplace that we barely even register as AI. But at the same time, you look at the sort of cutting edge of AI, the ability to recognize objects at a, at a very high fidelity and level is what's unlocking some of the other technologies like self-driving cars. I was going to say, my partner has a self-driving car. He syncs it with his phone. So now when he gets in the car and we have dinner reservations, the map pops up the location for dinner and shows the map. So he doesn't have to get in and let the car know where he's going. The car knows, which is both easy and a little disturbing. You know, and you can say that about any of these technologies, actually. New tech always seems creepy when it first starts off, especially if it's um, really, really disruptive. You know, I had, I had brought up a little earlier about this whole concept of GPT, general purpose technologies. General purpose technologies, maybe I'll talk about this quickly and then we'll dive back mm-hmm. into the list of seven because it might set it up a little better. But general purpose technology is not a new concept. It's an economic concept. It's been around for a while. And what they are, are a new technology or tool that humans have invented that have fundamentally changed how we interact with the world some way. And so, for example, the invention of writing, the invention of money, the invention of the printing press, the steam engine, electricity, computers. But if you go through the list, there's actually a Wikipedia page. There's not more than a couple dozen general purpose technologies out there. And they tend to happen like really infrequently. 
as we've gone through the ages, they have been happening, happening, general purpose technologies have been invented with increasing frequency. What's interesting about this particular decade, and the reason I chose these seven are, these are all seven, each one is a major candidate to be a general purpose technology. So the idea of seven general purpose technologies that in their own right are disruptive, both in how we operate as a society, as well as economically, all at the same time, I mean, this decade, everyone just strap in, you're, you're in for a big mm. ride. And so we talked about AI, it's already making impacts. I, I don't think there's very many people even today who would claim that AI isn't going to continue making massive changes in how we operate as a society. Last decade was all about big data. AI is how we use that big data because just having a database filled with trillions of records isn't valuable. But an artificial mind that can go through that data and find signals in that noise, very, very valuable. There was AI. Then we get into extended reality. Extended reality, virtual reality, augmented reality. It's really a spectrum, right? And it's a spectrum in how much do you want to engage with the world. With augmented reality, the idea is that you're augmenting the real world with some digital artifacts or digital information. So think about maybe Google Glass. Google Glass was this sort of prism you would wear. Above your eye, a screen would float. Um, I actually wore these for over a year. I and mean, I wrote two books about Google Glass, actually. What I found was I was so used to this clock hovering in my line of sight at all times. I always knew what time it was. And when I stopped wearing it, it was almost like a limb was missing. Like there was just this knowledge that was gone now. And it just becomes part of your life and, and, and how you operate. Now I you know, wear an Apple watch all the time. Mm. And it's the same thing where like, I'm used to knowing how many steps I've taken in a day. It's just part of what I know. So there's that sort of aspect of it, of, of just augmenting the real world with more information. Then there's the other side of it, which is virtual reality, which is actually replacing the entire world with a fully virtual and immersive experience. South by Southwest, you can now attend with your virtual reality goggles. I don't have to travel to South by Southwest, but I can sit in the bleachers and actually have conversations with other people sitting with their virtual reality glasses who don't happen to be in hearing distance of me. So that's a kind of a funky reality as well that wasn't possible a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, recently, my team, we've been attending uh, live NBA games together uh, hmm. through a system called Oculus Events. And they're... Yep, that's they, the same. Yeah, and it's great. And you can just, you can have conversations with people. You can watch the game live, comment on it. And of course, you, everyone can share the best seat in the house. So it's like, you know, right now, a secondary market for courtside seats at a Trailblazers game here in Portland is going to cost you, you know, upward to a thousand bucks. Well, this is $25 and I have, I have a similar kind of view. So you just um, don't get the guy with the popcorn, but that is the downside, but that's okay. I've got a microwave. So yeah, it's about that sense of presence. And in fact, there was, I just read an article about this young woman who made a startup where she has, she's giving virtual reality headsets to people in retirement homes 
And hmm. she, she had this headset on a woman who was 103 years old, who had never been to the Eiffel Tower, and she always wanted to. And it's a very like powerful video to see her crying because she can see it and she feels like it was real. She felt like she was there uh, for the first time in her life. Again, you can kind of create this presence, not just in space, but also in time. You can travel back in time and see what the Parthenon would have looked like and experience it in the past. We actually, over Christmas, got my dad the Oculus, and he's a Vietnam veteran. So he was able to go back to where he was in Vietnam, where he served, and see what he experienced, which was incredibly powerful for him as an older veteran to be able to have that experience. That's a really, really good point. In fact, my dad, he's also a Vietnam vet. He would always talk about, he's like, I'd love to go see Vietnam. It's a beautiful country if you're not being shot at. And so it's like just being able to, to go and experience it in this sort of d- different headspace at a different time. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really fascinating idea. I'll bring that up. Because at this point, I don't know about your dad, but my dad can't get on a plane and get there. To the point, again, people who are older in more mature in years and less mobile, we did a, now he's been to the White House because we grew up in D.C., but we did the President Obama tour of the White House. And depending on which political party you're affiliated with, that's either a joy or an, a conversation one is having with the Oculus as they're going through the, the building. And it was just fun to watch my father have these experiences. And from a business perspective, local home builder and my homes now does virtual tours of their homes. And during the pandemic, people are buying homes through virtual reality tours. This is happening right now. So I'm actually building a house. And before there was a single board laid, I we had the schematics and I scanned it and I built a 3D virtual model of how we wanted everything laid out. And so my wife and I are walking around in this sort of virtual space and being like, well, we would like to put a couch here, but there's a wall in the way. So let's just move the wall. It's so it's it's like adds this complete like different dimension to home design. Yeah, one more thing about VR. In the early days of the pandemic, when we were trapped at home and my kids couldn't go to school, my oldest was really interested in Egypt. And so we put on the VR goggles and visited Egypt virtually and looked at the pyramids and did a virtual uh, camel ride and all of this. It's made the experience so much more real than just reading about it in a book. Mm -hmm. Or watching a Rick Steves show or something. That's right. I'm just mindful of time and I want to make sure we get through all of these. And it's fascinating to talk about them. So I think your third was Internet of Things? Yes. IoT is interesting. I I, I just call it a grand unified theory of computing. I mean, largely because Internet of Things is just smaller and smaller and smaller computers. And so at what point, like by almost every single definition of smartphone is an Internet of Things. It's it, so mm-hmm. if that's the case, then so is a tablet. And if that's the case, so is a laptop. In that case, so is a desktop. But then you shrink down. It's like, so is my watch. My watch is just kind of a smaller iPhone. It's really now that we've gotten to the point where you can add intelligence to things that were previously not smart, I think it's going to be difficult for people to go back. And I'll give a good example is I've replaced all the light bulbs in my house with smart bulbs. Before I go to bed at night, I say, I should probably not say it. She'll hear me, but I'll say, hey, Siri, good night. And then she'll turn all the lights off. And yeah, and so I don't have to hunt. 
she did hear that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if it goes dark, you'll know why. But my kids do it now. And so I can't imagine that in 10 years, they're ever going to even bother with light switches. What would be the point? I mentioned Mike has a Tesla, so he doesn't use a key. You don't pick up keys if you don't need a car key sometimes. So we've now put combo locks, smart locks. And now I get an alert anytime the lock opens and shuts, which is, again, there's a creepy monitoring side that goes with that. But when, when I need to have a project done in the house, I can give a code to the person doing the work. Right. My thermostat's a smart thermostat, my ring doorbell. It, it seems like everything around us now has some intelligence and I control all of it from my phone. Yeah, absolutely. And IoT is, is interesting because, again, it's sort of like AI and the fact that it's like we're never going to perfect it. It's just going to keep getting better and better and better, which is going to become more and more and more ubiquitous. The way I like to think about it and break it down is based on scale and of the device and the range of the device. And so at the smallest scale, you're talking about like near field communication, right? Like I tap my phone to use Apple Pay. Okay, that's the smallest, nearest field. Then you get to sort of personal scale. And that's like I'm wearing a smartwatch and I've got my AirPods in and I go for a run. I don't carry a phone when I go for a run anymore because this has GPS and it has LTE and it streams music and podcasts and everything. This, Um, let me say, since people don't see you, Eric's pointing to his watch. Yes, 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 good point. So then you get up to the next scale and you talk about like, oh, your smart home right? So now my living space is filled with smart devices. And then you go up even to to smart cities. So there are now Mm -hmm. cities where increasing intelligence being put into traffic lights and put into smart cameras and all this other interesting information. And now you start getting into smart world. An example of this is programs underway right now to put sensors in the oceans. And so that way we can, at a very detailed level, track and predict weather. We can track and predict climate change. We can track and predict just the movement of the waves, you know, the, the churn of and the heat that's going in the oceans and all of this. So now we're, we're able to know, hey, are we having a positive impact or a negative impact on the climate? And how is that affecting us uh, globally? Now, what's interesting is all this data is being collected. It's being streamed in through all these new networks and being understood by AI. So it's, again, how all these systems fit together. And then ultimately by quantum computing. We'll get to quantum computing because the computational requirements of all of this increasing amount of data is becoming too much for our classical computers to handle, for sure. Okay, so is number four autonomous vehicles and autonomous robotics? Yep. So autonomous vehicles, another interesting one is it's going to change everything, especially about cities. Yeah, I think 30% of cities are parking garages and parking lots. So what can we do when we're in a scenario where I don't need to park my car anymore? Like my car takes me to where I go, want to go. And just like a chauffeur, I walk out and the car drives away. Maybe it's a community car. Maybe it's a, a fleet. So I don't even need to own it. So it's like, it's like Uber just without another person in the car. And it can 24 hours a day, sort of when it needs a charge, it goes back to charge and it goes and picks someone else. 95% of a car's life is spent idle. So there are really good estimates that are saying that once we've adopted self-autonomous vehicles, car purchases will contract by 40%. Now there's a lot of carbon 
necessary to create a new vehicle as well as them driving around. So take the total number of cars in the world, reduce it by 40%, there's going to be a positive climate impact to that. 1.3 million people are killed in automobile accidents every single year, but now you've got a fleet of perfect drivers. Now, a lot of people aren't going to die unnecessarily. Think about all the highway lanes that exist. Well, if you have all of these sort of perfect drivers and fewer cars at any given time, you can start reducing the amount of lanes. So suddenly you don't need to drive down a city with two lanes or four lanes. You can actually start reclaiming that for you know, maybe outdoor seating and outdoor dining, which we we're doing anyway, because of the pandemic, you go around Manhattan, and there is a lot of outdoor seating and outdoor dining, we can make that permanent. So on and on and on and on, suddenly, you don't have to live in the city anymore, because a lot of people don't necessarily mind living outside as long as they don't have to commute. So suddenly, suburbs become more desirable. So it's like, it's really going to change, I think, how we how we operate in the world. And this gets back to then the combination of of the trends. So let's move to the next couple real quickly, because I do want to get to how do we as leaders think about this? Are we going to do an entire conversation on blockchain? You know, cryptocurrency, is it crypto, is it fiat? The the very short thing that I think is most interesting about blockchain, one, is that it's trust. It, It creates a trusted network even if you have players that don't fundamentally trust each other or they have every reason to cheat the system. It's designed in such a way that you can't cheat. I'm building a house right now and we've got to hold money in escrow. So I'm, I have a company that's doing nothing but just holding on to cash that you can trust. Well, we don't need that organization. Maybe in the future, we can just hold it in the blockchain. NFTs are another big thing, non-fungible tokens. You know, How do you create real ownership in a digital world? We're just now starting to explore that space as well. Moving on to 3D printing. Yeah, we talked about 3D printing. We talked about 3D printing houses and how it's going to affect supply chain and logistics and manufacturability. It's going to affect how much things can be customized. I mean, I think a simple example is shoes, right? Like there are standard shoe sizes, but everybody has slightly different shaped feet. So suddenly, well, what's stopping us from doing a 3D scan of your foot using a smartphone and a factory down the street printing up a shoe just for you and you go to pick it up and it fits perfectly. You can extrapolate this for all manner of things. And then finally, quantum computing Quantum computing, again, is is really kind of tough, I think, for most folks to wrap their heads around. But the simplest version is that whereas the most powerful supercomputer right now in the world can only simulate a handful of atoms physically, on the flip side, a quantum computer could simulate as many states as there are atoms in the known universe. That is a huge jump in computing power. And so uh, an example is COVID. There's this process called protein folding where they try to simulate how drugs will interact with real like biological systems. People were donating spare computing power, exabytes of computing power just to help run these drug simulations to help come up with a vaccine quicker. And it went months and months and months and months. In a few years, a researcher will be able to run that same simulation in a few minutes or an hour, and they'll be able to do it over and over and over. So it's just going to unlock new drug discoveries, new kinds of materials and all of that. So I want to jump in for just a second with a couple of thoughts about leadership as I listen to how each of these and build on each other. 
And the idea that as leaders, we are solving for problems that don't have solutions. So how these things combine is unpredictable at this point. I mean, we can make predictions, but we don't know. So we're watching for it to emerge. And that's a different kind of leadership skill than bringing in a bunch of experts and identifying best practices. So Eric, you're in this field. We've got like two minutes. What do you recommend for leaders? Knowledge, start with knowledge. You have to cultivate a bit of a fearlessness to experiment. You've got to be focused on speed. I think there a lot of a lot of organizations are structured in such a way that you know we'll, we didn't budget for this this fiscal year. We'll we'll plan for it next fiscal year. Lack of speed is a risk, and you've got to understand and internalize that reality. And I think that you can balance this risk with sort of a portfolio approach to innovation. And so mm. uh, that's that's another big aspect is just be aware of what do you mean by innovation? What are you trying to get after? And, 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 and categorize them in certain ways. And here's one I like from a book called Mapping Innovation, which, which I absolutely love. And if you imagine sort of axes where like how well understood is the problem or opportunity on one dimension and the other dimension is how well understood is the, the process, the domain of knowledge, the technology. If you put those both together, it creates this really nice quadrant Imagine the lower left hand where it's like, look, we don't know what our problem or opportunity is, and we're not entirely sure how to solve it. That's just pure R&D. Don't do that. Let research, go fund academic institutions to do R&D. On the other far side, when people talk about, oh, everyone's an innovator, what they're really talking about is sort of the sustaining innovation where you've got a pretty well understood problem or opportunity you want to get after, and you kind of have a pretty good idea of how you want to go after it. Great. Everyone should be doing that kind of innovation. That's sort of this culture of innovation companies talk about. Great. We've covered half of the quadrant. The other two, I think, are where things get interesting. And this is what this book is really about, which is what about the case where you've got a well-understood problem, well-understood opportunity, but you're not entirely sure how to solve it? What is that breakthrough innovation? You're going to need to understand the technology to go about doing it. The other part of that quadrant are disruptive innovations where, look, there's some new emerging tech, some new capability, but we're not entirely sure what to do. Great. You got to go after those as well. So, Eric, you've just talked about then the quadrant model and what leaders need to be thinking about and putting energy to. So this gives us then a wrap up that as we are living in this VUCA world, you shared some great advice and observations about technology and where organizations need to be in relationship to technology. What one takeaway can you implement to further investigate, to strengthen your own organization, to be prepared for each of these seven as they're going to roll out over time and fold back in on each other so thinking about your own company and also the industry and how your industry could be upended, also how these can create strategic advantage for you compared to your competitors. So any closing words? And can you also give our listeners a way to contact you? You wrapped it up pretty well. Knowledge, fearlessness, speed. We just need to cultivate this. Digital literacy isn't something you, you can rely on others for. If you're involved in leadership, goal setting, crafting strategies, you must be as familiar with the landscape of deep tech as you already are about other aspects of your business like marketing or finance. In this decade, it is a new basic requirement, and we're all tech leaders now. 
so that's really the fundamental core conceit of the book. So the book is called Deep Tech, and you can find me on deeptechbook.com or wherever fine books are sold. Thank you. And LinkedIn as well? Yep, I'm not hard to find. Thank you so much, Eric. Closing comment that I just heard you say, and I think you probably said it at the beginning, that leaders need to have as price of entry in being in a leadership role cultivating an understanding of deep tech because it is already and will continue at an accelerating rate to impact your ability to operate in a business effectively and stay in business long-term. Deep part of industry 4.0. So to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you take away something that you can do immediately in your world, like think about deep tech and how it's impacting your business. Please like us follow us, and listen to future podcasts. This is Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.